the thing that's so amazing about being presented the opportunity to run a business that was founded to do the right thing is that you're not you're it, it, it's you've got the authenticity and that's such an asset right the authenticity was already there from twin cities business this is by all means a show about innovation drive and purpose and the leaders who make business work in minnesota i'm allison kaplan your host and editor-in-chief of twin cities business magazine we're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. We've talked about coffee on By All Means, and we've certainly talked about building businesses and making money. Lee Wallace checks all of those boxes. The owner of Peace Coffee, her passion and expertise is at the intersection between mission and money. Peace Coffee, which wholesales to grocers throughout the country, has been recognized as one of the top 10 most sustainable coffee businesses in the US and one of the most ethical companies. Internally, it frequently makes the list of best places to work. Lee is an expert in fair trade enterprises and social enterprise business. She was doing it long before it became popular to talk about mission-based businesses. Lee, I'm I'm so excited. People have told me for so long that I have to meet you, that you are just such a wise and inspiring leader. And especially in this time, so much is changing about coffee consumption, where we do it, how we do it. It's such an interesting um, industry in this crazy year. So thank you for agreeing to talk to us. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. What? Uh, let, let's start with the with the current right now. I mean, it's got to just have, this year must feel like a crazy roller coaster. You have you have coffee shops. You have a wholesaling business. You sell to grocery stores ups and downs what what has this year been like yeah it's it's been a completely uh crisis to crisis kind of feeling mm-hmm. um but you know i can see the through line right i can i can see see the progress of the company and the business we have coffee shops obviously um closed them in march they are not open right now um and then at, at, on the other hand people aren't drinking less coffee they're just drinking coffee in different places, like you said. So we saw, you know, people were switching to e-commerce if they didn't want to leave their home or they're going to the grocery store more often. I can't tell you how many meetings I've been in where someone sort of cheekily reaches underneath the table and then pulls out a big five pound bag of peace coffee and says, this is what we're doing right now at home. So, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 I, I feel really lucky because overall, even though there have been so many shocks to the system, and so many things we had to plan for we didn't know we were going to have to plan for, we're in really great shape. That's amazing. That's great. Well, let, we'll, we'll come back to what's happening now and how you're thinking about the future. But, but let's go back to your childhood. You grew up in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Um, was, did, you, did you think you wanted to go into business? What, what, what was childhood like? What did you want to be when you grew up? I knew I wanted to work. So I used to go, I've heard other people say this too, but you know, I, I very much saw that our family life revolved around my parents' work. They were both very active in the community. They would talk about, you know, different boards that they were on over dinner. And so it really, that's the way we organized our family life. What did they do? My dad was an attorney, um, and my mom was an English teacher for a number of years. 
stayed at home for a while, and then went back and worked in college admissions. And then she, she sort of parlayed that into starting her own business, and she was a college counselor for um, people who maybe didn't know where they wanted to apply to college or needed help with their essays, things like that. Okay. Um, but then, you know, my mom was very involved with Planned Parenthood. My mom was very involved with a variety of different nonprofits and, and served in, in leadership roles on boards of directors. And that was a huge passion for her. Mm-hmm. Um, so this work and, and, and being part of the civic life of the community was huge for my parents. And then, you know, my dad had grown up in an even more rural area than I grew up in. And he saw the impact of businesses leaving rural communities throughout upstate New York. He saw what happened when people tried to transfer the farm from one generation to the next. And he became really interested in how do you keep businesses in communities and how do you, you know, keep people employed, keep the communities vibrant, prevent, you know, economic destruction from happening. And so he would take us to visit different kinds of businesses throughout upstate New York. So you know, we went and visited a wooden cutting board factory, the last domestic wooden cutting board uh, factory in the United States. Or um, they also made plant stakes there, wooden plant stakes. And so we would go, we would go and learn about the steel industry on the western side of New York State. And he would talk to us about the importance of these employers and these industries and, and how um, the, this is what really knit the fabric of communities together was having places for people to work. So that message really came through to me around the the value of employing people and the importance of employing people and sort of by default the importance of employees. Mm-hmm. So you were you were sort of getting a, a mini MBA before you even went to undergrad. Yeah, I suppose so. McAllister is what led you to Minnesota, right? Yes. How did McAllister get on your radar? Why did you why did you come here and what did you want to study? I was a pretty I don't want to say I was a nonconformist, but I just always walked or marched to the beat of my own musical instrument. And so um, I knew I wanted something really different from what I had around me and what was surrounding me. But I didn't know how to figure that out. And one of my dad's friends said, you know, my son Christian went to McAllister. He's very much like you. I think you should look into it. And that is how I ended up at McAllister College. I talked to that uh, guy, Christian, uh, Christian Bender, wherever you are. <laughs> um, and he said to me, you know what? I think you'd fit in. You, you, you'd really, I think you'd really fit in at McAllister. Um, I had a, a beloved English teacher in high school who also was always saying, like, you know, you need to spread your wings and go someplace bigger than this and explore and get more of a diversity of ideas and opinions in your life. And so I went to her with my college admissions forms, and I said, I have to go to McAllister, right? And she said, yes. Hmm. And, and, so, and did it prove out? Was it the experience you had hoped for? It was great for me. I had gone to a very small school. I'd been with the same kids from fourth grade through 12th grade, and there were only about 20 kids in the school. So, um, you know, for me, it was a huge leap to go to a college campus with 1,800 people. Yeah. Um, you know, I eventually went on to grad school at the University of Minnesota, and at that point it was fine. But for 18-year-old for me, it was the right size, um, and yeah, I got I got a lot of exposure to a lot of different opportunities at McAllister, so that was huge. What did you major in? Uh, I majored in anthropology. Okay, uh, so not business. But, no, but then you decided a while later that you were going to pursue an MBA, but you were kind of turned down. Yeah, I was I was counseled away. I would say um, yes, I decided. So you know, 
from early on in those experiences going around upstate New York and thinking about, you know, the role of business, I always thought that there was there there was sort of fundamentally a mission ba- baked into every business in this way, right? If it's if it's improving communities and employing people and preventing, you know, communities from drying up. So um I I knew that I wanted to figure out how to combine this idea of of mission and money. Hmm. And um so I went and I talked to the folks at the Carlson School and I this was the nineties. This is, you know, something that, you know, weird hippies and corners did, right? Uh, I you know, it just it was it was outlandish then sort of. Isn't that or, crazy it, to think about? It how is much crazy. It's changed? Yeah. yeah. And just the idea that it wasn't scalable, right? You can do that, but you're gonna have this little thing. It's not gonna be scalable. No one's ever gonna be interested in it. You're not gonna really have that much impact. It was there were all these assumptions. And um so I talked to the folks across and then they just said, ah, you sound like a public policy student, you know, <laughs> or those sounds like sound like the kind of ideas that nonprofit people have. So I did. I went to the Humphrey School, got a degree. I did tons of different things while I was there. I was able to explore my interests, um, ended up being a good two years for me. And and did you then um, go into public policy work or did you go into business? What what were some of the early and, and important jobs in your career? Yeah, I, I got a fellowship at the Blandon Foundation in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. They, at the time, schools were consolidating. They had a lot of empty school buildings. And so one project I got to do was help them understand best practices in business incubation. So a number of schools are being converted to multi-level business incubators. So sometimes they had, you know, a bakery on the ground floor, artist lofts, you know, uh, the housing, uh, art, art studios, housing. So um, I helped them study business incubation. I helped them decide whether or not they were going to fund business incubators. Um, so I had a variety of different projects that I got to work got to work on up there. Then I came back to the cities and I worked for a human rights nonprofit that had a bunch of different earned income streams. So we ran English language classes, Spanish language classes. We had a bookstore. We had a cafe. Uh, we had a language school that happened in Wisconsin. So I ran all of their earned income programs. Fulfilling work? Um, you know, there was just a lot of politics at that organization. So, um, but yes, yeah, fulfilling work. But it it's still, you know, I think I'm a for-profit person hmm. at heart. Um, there's just something about the how quickly you can build scale in a for-profit environment, which is more difficult in a nonprofit environment. And and I find that resource scarcity and that mentality that you need to have to be a scrappy nonprofit uh, just isn't my talent, right? And, um, so uh, I left that nonprofit and founded my own consulting firm. And I was just trying to talk to everybody about mission and money, mission and money, who's working on mission and money and just taking different projects, mm-hmm. working on business planning, things like that. Were there any um, great examples that you held up at that time? I mean, companies that you're like, yeah, that's that's the kind of business I'm talking about. I think of like a Patagonia. Were they doing their thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people were doing their thing. I and mean, Ben and Jerry's would probably mm. be a really good example at the time of um, I don't remember when they sold to Unilever, but just even how they kind of created that mission lock in that company when they sold to Unilever. Mm-hmm. That would be a, a good example. Um, and yeah, Patagonia was doing their thing. They've become a lot more visible and vocal and out there, which yeah. is wonderful. Um, so, you know, I don't think they were as visible during that time. So did pe- so you were a consultancy? Did people want your services? Some did people. they want? Did they yeah. want? And and was it businesses that were 
trying to bake a mission into for-profit work? I mean, how, how did it, what kind of work did you get? I worked for mainly nonprofits, some government entities. Um, I, there weren't a lot of for-profit business. Peace Coffee was really the first for-profit business to hire me. I was trying to market myself as, hey, I can help with for-profit stuff. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't really find a lot of business there. Um, so when the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, who used to own Peace Coffee, approached me about coming and consulting with them, I was like, finally, I found someone who's going to work with me on this. Okay. So what did they initially come calling for? What did they want help with? So they were, um, they, they did not have a CEO currently running the business. It was about a million dollar business. They really wanted to understand why they as a nonprofit owned a for-profit company. So wait, break that down for us. So Peace Coffee, for-profit coffee business, yep. but owned by a nonprofit. Yeah. So they just held all the shares of stock in a C corporation. So okay. Peace Coffee was a C corporation. Who started it? Who founded Peace Coffee? Um, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. At the time, Mark Ritchie, who went on and had a career in politics, um, at the time he was at the at the helm of mm -hmm. the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, which I'm going to call IATP from now on. Um, he was at the helm of IATP, and he's a very, very visionary guy. Mm -hmm. And he started a lot. He, he's very entrepreneurial. And so he started a lot of sort of little spin-off projects and businesses while he was at IATP. And this was like what year did, did it start? 96. Okay. So it started in 1996. And so at that time, you didn't have as many um, little startup coffee companies as you do today. I mean, was that sort of more novel back then? It was way, it was, it was yeah, it was pretty novel. There's a batch that was started around that time because interest in fair trade was growing. But it was still was a pretty small niche thing. Mm -hmm. People weren't, I mean, think about the mid-90s. People weren't talking about where did the milk and this cheese come from or, you know, look, you, the, these pigs came from this farm. Um, it just the farm-to-table movement hadn't quite hit its stride in the way it did in the, in the later years. And coffee was very much the same way. People knew about Juan Valdez. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what they knew about, right? I mean, right. they... they they were still, you know, Starbucks had started. Starbucks paved the way for all of us. Mm -hmm. Starbucks had started getting people to think about coffee as an indulgence, as a, a treat, as, you know, something to, to start your day with. But it's, it, it's a nice part of your day and not just, I got to drink this coffee and get out the door because I need to go to, you know, a factory or whatever the message was in the 50s. Right. So, so in the, the early days of Peace Coffee, what was the initial mission? So if you go back and look at the old business plans, it's funny. They originally thought of Peace Coffee as more of an importing company. They thought we're going to buy things directly from farmers. And we're going to pay farmers fairly for those things. But so in the early days, they bought fair trade soccer balls. They bought coffee. They bought hacky sacks. <laughs> I mean, they bought all kinds of things. And they were sell They were then selling them. Yeah, there was oh. a huge church market for fair trade things. So, so really, fair trade, fair trade, you know, grew and scaled initially through the faith community because mm -hmm. people thought it was the right thing to do. They knew it was the right thing to do. They wanted to make sure that people in, you know, Guatemala or Peru or Ethiopia were getting a fair wage for their labors. Mm -hmm. So Peace Coffee was not manufacturing initially. They were buy, They were just sort of a distributor. Yeah. So between 96 and 2002, 
they were buying the green coffee, somebody else was roasting it, bringing it back, and then it was being bagged. We didn't build our first roasting facility until 2002. Okay. And and was it mostly a regional sell? Or, I mean, and where where was it sold? Yeah, the, the initial um, accounts were in Minneapolis. And, you know, the food co-ops were really the first people who said, okay, we're going to take a chance on this weird company that, you know, is talking about farmers, farmers, farmers. And then, you know, our first delivery method was bike delivery. We've been doing that since the very start. So you had to be okay with somebody who might be wet showing up. <laughs> you know, with bags of coffee, uh, stocking them on your short store shelves. So um, co-ops were really where, you know, it was churches and then food co-ops where, where Peace Coffee got our start. So you come in as a consultant. They're, the, the business is profitable yep. at this point, but it's it's pretty modest. Yep. And, and what do you re- immediately see big potential? I immediately saw a really cool model. Yeah, I thought... You know, this is a a brand that people love. Um, It's something that people can get behind. Um, You know, all of the elements were there when I walked through the door. I, you know, just stumbling across and saying, oh, wow, this is this is just it's so cool. And then the connection back to coffee farming communities is so strong because that's what we were designed to do from from day one. You said you asked earlier, did I get jobs from for profit businesses who are looking to engineer a mission into their business? I'm of the opinion that consumers can always feel that when that's what has happened. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at it and you think, oh, right, here's this yogurt and they're giving five cents to, you know, pick, pick, your, pick your thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just like kind of an afterthought. And I think you can tell when it's an afterthought. And the, the thing that's so amazing about being presented the opportunity to run a business that was founded to do the right thing is that you're not, you're, it, it, it's, you've got the authenticity and that's such an asset, Right. Authenticity was already there. It's just, you know, and there's been a whole series of kind of different events that have I've, you know, been through on my journey that have helped me learn how to scale and, and build the business. How quickly did your relationship with Peace Coffee move from consultant to employee to owner? Um, well, I within about six months, they hired me as the CEO. Okay. Um, things were going well. The staff liked me. The owners initially wanted to do a search because that's smart. Um, and I said to them, I can either run a search for you or I can be a candidate for the job, but I can't do both. So you're going to need to choose. Hmm. Um, and that was, a, that was a tough conversation, but important to me because I need to, you know, wake up and feel good about myself in the morning that sure. I'm not conflicted. Yeah. Um, so they ended up offering me the job ultimately. And you were all in. I mean, you wanted, I mean, you yeah. didn't. You didn't have a second thought about leaving the consulting work? Uh, no, no. No, it was like I, fi- I found my were, thing. Yeah. You know, in a lot of ways, and I've talked to other people who view consulting like this, consulting can be a good way to look for your next project mm-hmm. or, you know, your next sort of immersive project. Um, I had gotten lonely, which is weird because I'm an introvert, but working by myself all day out of my house with, I mean, it was great hanging out with my dog, but... Um, it was just like, oh, this is not, and this was not even during a pandemic. Right. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I'd gotten lonely. I wanted to have coworkers again. Um, and I, I, you know, this was like such a scrappy team who had been given 
not enough attention and not enough resources. And I thought, I can pull this group together and we can figure this out. Could it have been any product? I mean, was coffee part of the appeal or, or would you have been, you know, could it have been bicycles or books or, or anything? Was it, you know, was it the mission that, that drew you? It's the intersection of food and the mission. So I'm a food person. So, you know, way back, I used to work in food co-ops. Um, and then, you know, got to participate in working in food co-ops at a really interesting time when Whole Foods was coming to town and the co-ops were trying to figure out how to compete. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I am a food person. Um, coffee, you know, I love coffee because I love it that it's international and there's such a great story around it. And um, just all the improvements I've got to see in coffee growing communities over the years. Um, it's just, you know, the impact is so great. That's that's really cool. But but I think food is is also part of my interest. Sure. So so once you were CEO, what were some of the first things you did that started to, you know, set up the, the growth that Peace Coffee has experienced since? I think one thing that mission based companies try to do is, you know, if if they're if they're kind of being born out of a mission, they try to do everything perfectly. And that's just so hard. Mm hmm. You, you, you know, and, and I think it creates an inward mindset as opposed to an outward mindset. So if you're trying to do everything perfectly, you're, you're, that's what you're, you know, you're kind of in your own echo chamber. Mm -hmm. and it's very hard to be focused on customer and, and things like that. So when I started at Peace, that's what I saw is a lot of like inward facing conversations about the business. And so the first thing I did was really lead the company through a process to get us focused externally. And so the, what we settled on was um, our job is to buy as much fair trade organic coffee as we can every year from coffee farmers. That's our job. So all of a sudden we're focused on selling, right? We're focused on, you know, because the activities that we engage in are creating impact in coffee growing communities. And then it's like, you know, and yes, there's some other things like this is that's our, our North Star, right? There are other things we want to operate in an environmentally sustainable way, and we want to give back to our community, and that also includes making sure that we're being a good employer. Mm -hmm. Those are also very important to us. But, you know, when we are getting stumbling around and, you know, trying to figure out the answer to a hard question, it's like, wait, does it help us sell more coffee? Great. Okay. Yes or no? So how did you sell more coffee? It's, I think it's the strength of the brand, um, which I can't take credit for. So uh, it, it's just, I think, um, the, a couple of things have happened, right? So number one, people have just gotten more interested in our issues, right? Mm -hmm. We were just like this little weird kid, you know, standing off by the side of the playground. <laughs> and then all of a sudden people were like, wait, you're delivering coffee by bike? Wait, you have geothermal heating and a solar array and a, you know, green roof? You know, wait, you're, you, you can give me all this transparency into where this product came from. I can have confidence in this. And it just it felt a little bit like we have just taken on energy as our issues that we were really passionate about became the issues that consumers are really passionate about. And did you have the confidence when you started with Peace that, that the consumer would catch up to the mission? Did, did you know that would happen? And was there a, a tipping point where you saw people, the light starting to go on for consumers? Yeah, I remember, I think I just like kind of was like, I'm going to will this into happening. I don't know that I was <laughs> so much. I mean, I don't think I created it, but yeah. I do think, you know, I do have a little bit of the personality of like, if I believe in it, you know, if I think it's going to happen, then I'm just 
going to keep believing that I can be part of that happening. Yeah. Um, but yes, over the years, huge. Over the years, it's just been huge. I mean, look at the growth of, you know, Expo West, right? Like these huge trade shows that have grown up and gone from being these little, small, niche you know, I always joke that in the 90s, it was like if you're eating natural food or eating food that did good things for people or the planet, you were kind of suffering to do it. You were like, you know, wearing your Birkenstocks <laughs> and eating like a, you know, whole wheat tortilla full with like, you know, dry beans or something. Um, and I, I did that. And then and then you think about this, all the quality that's associated with these products now and how you can eat well, but also, you know, eat really delicious foods. I, I, I saw that coming. I saw the quality advancement going on in the industry. And I became convinced that um, both in coffee and in natural organic foods, that this was going to be a really big thing. So how did you set the company up for success, especially as those ideas became more mainstream? And it seems like your competition has only increased both in other companies doing fair trade and just the the proliferation of coffee companies. Yeah, there's a lot of competition out there. Um, <laughs> some very big, some very small, right. kind of in the middle. But I think what's different about Peace Coffee is our message is not, as specialty coffee has grown, the message tends to be, you know, you have to do it right. You have to do it well. Um, you have to have the right brand out on your countertop. You have to impress your friends. You can only drink this. You can't drink that. And we want to meet people where they're at. If you think something is delicious, who am I to tell you that that thing is not delicious? I think that's just a ridiculous concept. So we want to educate people, pr provide them with a delicious product, a variety of options, help them. I mean, we, we uh, run classes where we just teach people how to brew better coffee at home. But instead of saying, you have to have the exact right thing to brew your coffee, and we say, what do you like to use? We can make that better. Um, and, and so we're just... We're really focused on being friendly and approachable. And I, I think people really just appreciate that about us. Mm -hmm. And then it's just the sense that you can buy this product. You know, some some coffees, I feel like what they're trying to say is, you know, if you drink my product, you'll be the best, right? You'll be the most elite. <laughs> and I'm trying to say, if you drink our product, you're going to do good things for other people and you'll enjoy it. Hmm. So in the early 2000s, you decided to, to start roasting, not just buying. Yeah, th this was prior to my involvement. So I was hired as CEO in 2006 and then bought the business in 2018. But yes, we started roasting in 2002. And I think we realized in 2007, 2008, that the industry was headed toward quality. So when I got involved the business was really focused kind of more on the solidarity mission side of the business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for, when I came in from the outside, it was like, oh, we need a quality control lab. We need a quality control program. We need to start really focusing on because this is where the industry is going. Um, and so those are the investments we made in the business to keep pace with where the industry was going. And where do you, in the scheme of things, in terms of, you know, kind of like the highest end products, uh, where does Peace Coffee fit in the mix price point wise and positioning in the market? I mean, I would argue that our coffees are as good as or better than anybody else's. I mean, you can get some really niche products, right? Like with anything else, you can get a very, very, very expensive bottle of wine. It's not going to be an everyday product. And I'm interested in those coffees as well. I love those coffees. Um, so, yes, there, there are, you know, things like our seasonal blends where we have, you know, three seasonal blends. It's pollinator, nocturnal, snowshoe. And you, those change every year. You can 
taste the different coffees that are in them. We can tell you all about those different coffees. And then we have a, a, a core lineup, which is out there. Um, again, we want to be accessible to people. So, you know, we try to keep our coffees um, priced at an accessible price point. Um, but it's still a specialty coffee and we're still paying a lot to the farmers. So we can't mm-hmm. compete with, you know, commodity coffees. At what point did Peace decide to open coffee shops? About 10 years ago, we decided to open our first coffee shop. Why? Um, It was another way for us to demonstrate quality. Um, So what was happening was at that time, there was other kind of trade models getting involved. And so people were saying, fair trade isn't the highest quality coffee. Direct trade is the highest quality coffee. And all of that is insider, big time insider baseball, right? Mm -hmm. But there was so much attention and competition was heating up. And we wanted to put our money where our mouth is and say, no, look, we can compete on quality with, you know, anybody else. So did it start with one and then grew to four? Four. Okay. Mm -hmm. All in the Twin Cities. Did it make a difference? Um, Yeah. I think we accomplished what we set out to achieve. I do think that we, um, you know, are known for the quality of our coffees now. And we learned how to train baristas. We learned how to support our accounts. It's been a big benefit to the wholesale side of our business. Because we, um, you know, we have a head barista now, and we have a training program, and we can explain to you how to lay out your coffee shop and how to have efficiencies. And we have internal expertise on repairing equipment. And I mean, it just, it's really made us a better wholesaler mm-hmm. also. But wholesale is, of course, the, the far bigger part of yes, the business. Yes, that's the real focus of the business. And it was even pre-pandemic. Yes, yep. Um, so today, Peace Coffee sells where? How, I mean, give us just a, an idea. Of we sell from the Denver area uh, through over to through to Chicagoland and then a little bit into Michigan. That's That, I would say, is like our core you know, focus as a, as a wholesale business. And it's not just co-ops anymore. No, not at all. It's Mm-mm. big grocers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in, you know, Whole Foods and Target and, you know, a couple grocery store chains in Wisconsin and all kinds of different retailers carry us. And do you think that those, those big companies, are they coming to you because they want a, a mission-based business? I mean, is, is the, the story of Peace Coffee what leads them to you? Or is it just the taste? Um, well, first and foremost, if you don't have a delicious product, you know, throw the mission out the window because mm-hmm. you don't have a company. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a variety of things. I mean, I, I do think there's something about the brand that makes people really want to champion us. And I, and I get that from buyers. We're also a trusted partner. We'll come in. We'll provide guidance. We'll talk about the coffee category. Um, and then there's just the strength of our sales. I mean, our, our, we have a, when a grocer puts us on the shelf, we sell really well and we're able to give them that data and prove that we deserve to stay there. And, you know, we've, we, retailers keep expanding us. So. so who are your customers? Who buys Peace Coffee? I mean, they tend to be people who are interested in organic food products, um, similar to mirroring kind of what goes on in the organic industry. So um, a, a lot of women... Um, people who are interested in the things that they put into their body, eating well, interested in the planet, interested in sustainability, interested in products that are giving back. Um, and I imagine in a lot of ways that's just become an easier and easier sell as, as more customers, more consumers seem to care about that. Well, and especially millennials. I mean, mm-hmm. look at millennials. The, these are all of millennials issues and they're, you know, the largest buying generation right now. So 
I think there's more room for products like ours to continue to expand. Um, meanwhile, as you're just growing the the business, you're also leading a team. You have how many employees? How many people? About work for fifty. Um, does that include the the? Sh- I mean, the shops. That's different. That we'll we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, you have won numerous awards for for being a, a great place to work, and uh, the the mission and kind of your vibe seems to carry through the the workplace as well. How do you do that? How do you take care, you know, inside and outside of the company? I I just, I really like people. Um, I really like employing people. And I really like people to be engaged. You know, there was one day where I was driving in my car and I was alone and I was looking around. I was looking at all of these other people in their cars. And I thought, wow, it, it was the end of the day, the end of the workday. And I thought, I really hope those people were happy because they just spent 8 to 10 to 12 hours somewhere. And it's, it's, you spend so much time at work. It's such a huge, like, such a huge part of your day that I want people to feel like that time spent was valuable, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it, I can't imagine anything worse than driving home from work miserable. I know people who do it. But it's like the the worst concept to me. And there's so much privilege in being able to say that. Like, okay, I'm choosing this. Not everybody gets to choose that. I understand that. Um, but I'd like to choose that for my employees too. Um, and so we, we just cultivate a very respectful, inclusive um, workplace. I, I miss being able to have all my coworkers at work because – you know, you, you, there's all these conversations that happen, those water cooler type or just pull me aside type conversations um, that, that I really miss. But I think just that I love employee engagement mm-hmm. and I love people participating there or contributing their ideas to make the workplace a better place. As you have seen over the last number of years, it seems like mission has become a bigger conversation. Companies having purpose, I think. Um, you know, more companies starting from that place, but also a lot of companies scrambling to try to figure out yeah. what the mission is beyond making money. Uh, what What is your take on As somebody who has always been thinking about these things, what do you think of this evolution in business? I mean, there's a big part of me that thinks it's great. Um, I think that people... I think as long as employees continue to have different expectations, that's what's going to drive this change, right? Because employers, if they don't have happy employees or they don't have employees or they're not able to attract employees, that's going to really make them sit up and notice. And I think that's a lot of what's driving all of this. Now, is it authentic? Do you actually play that out throughout the whole organization? Some companies aren't very good at that, and that's where it's going to be problematic for them. They're going to have to take that seriously and really figure it out because, you know, Young people really, really care about this stuff, and they they have expectations for for the people at the top. Sure, it it seems easy. I mean, it seems like among startups and new companies, rare is is the venture that you hear today that doesn't have some sort of mission that's right. that's bigger than itself. Um, it seems a lot trickier for existing businesses. Yeah, as the 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 consultant in you, what advice would you give them if they're trying to seek that out? today? I mean, I, th- I think you have to make sure it works through at all levels of the organization. I think a lot of times there's not the will to make sure it really, truly filters down. And there's also a lot of like initiative switching, mm-hmm. right? Okay, well, that didn't work. Let's throw this initiative out there. Let's throw this initiative. It's like, 
I think that there's got to be the the political will, if you will, at the top of these companies to really make sure things get integrated all the way down through the business. Right. So along comes COVID-19. Um, you were already planning to do to open an expansion, right? To expand your was that before the pandemic that that yeah. was in the works? Yeah, yeah. And and did you see um, sales, grocery store sales, spike right away as everybody was locked down? Oh well, yeah. There was all that 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 pandemic buying, yeah. right? I mean, people. And just, you were part of that. Um, both as a consumer and as <laughs> as a business. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, was Peace Coffee selling out? What did you? How did you keep up with the oh, increased it was, demand? It was just. It was intense. Yeah, it was intense. It was, um, you know, we're fortunate in that because we run, run our own direct store delivery program, we could control a lot of it by getting our folks out there and restocking shelves. Um, and then, you know, our account manager was on the phone negotiating with grocery stores to leave back stock because we don't normally get to leave back stock in the back of the stores that we do direct store delivery to. So it was just responding and making sure we had as much product on the shelves as was possible. Mm-hmm. Um, Did manufacturing get trickier, though, with the pandemic and lockdown yeah. and all that? Yeah. So we had just expanded our roasting facility. We'd installed a new 140-kilo roasting machine, which greatly increased our capacity to produce roasted coffee. And um, we made the decision to start carrying a little more inventory, right? Just in case something happened, in case, you know, somebody got COVID and we had to shut down or we just decided we were going to increase our inventory levels. But what was so just sort of mind blowing about the moment was, you know, one night I was walking around the roastery and looking at all of the packaged coffee and then we had to get all this green coffee. Okay, what if there's, you know, there's all these questions about how well trucking was going to work and how logistics were going to work and, you know, Green coffee is being shipped from certain countries, but, you know, where port's going to be closed. I mean, there's just so much unknown. Mm-hmm. So we just pulled as much into our, into our roasting facility as we possibly could. And then I was walking around one evening just taking photos of this comp- the space that seemed like we were going to be fine for like the next seven years. And I was just taking pictures and sending them to my business partner, joking like we accidentally planned for a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Even before. Yeah. Huh? Well, that's, I guess, a, a good position to be in going going into this time. So have things leveled out or has the demand increased? We have continued to add new retailers. So we've continued to expand this year. Hmm. Um, we were really fortunate in that somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of our business was food service. So, you know, theaters, colleges, um, coffee shops, restaurants. So right away when March hit, that business just disappeared. Mm. Um, And we've been really fortunate in that we've been still growing despite that. And that's because people are just purchasing their coffee in different places, brewing their coffee in different places. So it hasn't slowed our growth. We're actually on plan for the year, even though um, all all of those accounts went away for us. Do you think that th- this that will go back to our prior life of, you know, going through the drive through, ordering a coffee on the way to the office, going, you know, going out for coffee, spending as much time as we did at coffee houses? Do you think we'll return to that or have we fundamentally changed? I think it'll be different for different people. I mean, I think there's some people who are like, oh, I just can't wait to get back or people who worked a lot out of coffee shops. But for the most part, you know, Coffee is a ritual. Coffee is an emotional experience. 
I think that a lot of people who have gone from, I just drink my coffee once I get to work, or they've started drinking their coffee at home, they might continue to drink that coffee at home in the morning because that's become, you know, some kind of ritual for them. Um, yeah, I, I didn't used to make coffee at home, and I, I'll probably make coffee at home. You didn't make coffee at home, I guess, because it was all right there just at the office, go right? to the office, and there's <laughs> wonderful coffee there, yeah. How much coffee do you drink on an average day? Two to three cups. Okay. I'm, Do you have a favorite blend of all no, of No, your... I love switching around. I, I am a complete, I don't get the same kind of coffee twice. And you love them all. In a row person. This summer, I, re- I um, made a lot of cold press. I drank a lot of iced coffee this summer. So that was my, we have a cold press blend. So I would say that was my favorite through the summer. But now that winter months are back and I'm drinking hot coffee again, Right now I'm drinking our Morning Glory blend, which is a light roast blend. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. So in addition to navigating the the pandemic and the new demands, your headquarters is located right near, are you on or you're right near East Lake Street? We are are just off East Lake Street. So we have a strip mall in between us and East Lake Street. And for those who aren't as familiar, that was really the heart of where a lot of the um, social unrest following the, the death of George Floyd took place. What were those days like? For, I mean, you, you already were like, oh, my gosh, this is a crazy, crazy time. And then this happens. What was it like and what happened at your building, at your headquarters? Yeah, so we are blocks, literally, from the 3rd Precinct Police Station, which, um, we know, was burned down. Um, The strip mall that we are just behind also burned for days. There were um, cars on the street outside of a roasting facility. They burned. The power poles burned. The power poles got set on fire. Um, You didn't have... Did you have people working at your um, at your facility during that time? After the first really big night of civil unrest, um, our roasters came in and then we sent them home. Um, so during the majority of the civil unrest and the and the fires, um, we were we were closed. I didn't really want very many people at the roasting facility, um, and it was more just a matter of like. Okay, I'm really hoping that this building doesn't burn down. And just, you know, more so just because you think about, you know, our business goes all the way back to coffee growing communities. I'm just thinking about the loss of, you know, where are these farmers going to sell their coffee? Um, We have uh, some good friends of mine actually um, went out and rented a bunch of Penske trucks. We drove them into the neighborhood during the day. We just put as much inventory onto the Penske trucks as we physically can in as little time. You know, we didn't want to spend a lot of time. Um, And some employees and some former employees met me down there and we just shoved as much inventory as possible into the trucks with the idea of, okay, we can, we'll figure out how to fulfill orders while we figure out where we're going to roast coffee if this place burns down. But we've just invested a substantial amount of money in new equipment, um, it's, it, it, you know, the building is really special because it is a, a green manufacturing facility with a variety of different tenants in it that's providing jobs in a neighborhood that has historically been very environmentally blighted, hasn't had a lot of quality jobs. So there was just a lot of feelings on my part around this. This It would be a real bummer if, you know, in addition to all the other business loss, um, if this 
Right. Was you were so busy acting and trying to, you know, prepare as much as one can. Did I mean, did you have time to even process what was going on? What what were your thoughts? I imagine when we were all, you know, under curfew and at home and watching all of this unfold on TV, what were you thinking? What were you doing? Um, it was, it's, you know, in moments of extreme stress, you just get into like one day at a time or one hour at a time, you know? I mean, obviously people are more important than anything in the building. So I didn't want anybody down there. I wanted everybody to be safe. Um, you know, if we had to figure out the building being gone, we'd figure out the building being gone. Um, and then I also live in Minneapolis. So it's just, you know, the stress was just kind of constant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was it was it was a very stressful time. It was also very funny. You know, I hired a new um, COO and CFO in February. And I just I more than anything else, I kept looking at her because between the pandemic and then this, I just kept looking at her and like, I'm really sorry I asked you to start a job right now. <laughs> you know, it's like as we're like making all these decisions together, I was, I was like, wow, who, whoever could have imagined starting a job, right, and having all of this stuff happen? Well, she's probably glad to have the job. Yeah. Um. So you, 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 you didn't burn down. Your no. Building no. Was no. Okay. Yeah, you were yeah. spared. Yep. Um. So so now what? What what has happened? What is it like in the neighborhood in Minneapolis and East Lake Street since since this summer? Since all the social unrest? Yeah, I participated. You know, the Lake Street Council raised a lot of money, and there were small business grants, and I participated as a as a grant reviewer. Um. And you know, a lot of these little business owners are very traumatized. Mm-hmm. Um. It, you know, people slept in their business to try to protect their business. They might have that that business might represent everything they have in their entire life. So um, there's still a lot of trauma out there. Um, I have a lot of hope. I love East Lake Street. I have lived and worked along East Lake Street for a lot of my career, um, dating back to to the 90s. Um, And, you know, I, I think it's just such an important corridor in our city, particularly for, you know, generations and generations of immigrants who've come and and started business on, on East Lake Street, on all of Lake Street, um, and and you know I I'm I'm hopeful, um, yet realize it's a hugely daunting task to rebuild. Do you, I mean it's a huge question, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can uh, I'm gonna ask it anyway because okay. that's what I do. Right. Sorry. Yep. Um, what do you hope happens? I mean this is this is an opportunity to you know there's so much damage, so much rebuilding that has to happen. Do you want to see it put back the way it was? Or is this an opportunity to think about something different or bigger? How do we kind of build that street for the future? Yeah, I mean, I I think that um, it connects to so many other conversations that the city is having to have, Mm -hmm. right? Um, You know, there, there have been problems with drug dealing on Lake Street. There's been problems with sex trafficking on Lake Street. And so, um, do I want to rebuild that, those portions of Lake Street, exactly the way they were? No, no. And I think there's some really good community members, and I don't want to take credit for the work because there's people who have been working on this far longer than I have been who are working hard to try to figure this out. The Lake Street Council has, you know, mushroomed from a staff of a few to a staff of over 10. Um, there, there are good people and good groups coming together to try to, to talk about this. Um, but it's going to take conversation at every level, right? We need to engage the business community. 
We need to engage the politicians. We need to engage, you know, around our conversation around what does public safety look like moving forward. Mm-hmm. There's so many layers there. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think we've got to make sure a lot of properties don't end up in the hands of developers who aren't from Minnesota. Yeah. You know, we've got to make sure that that community ownership is retained. Um, and then we've got to maintain the mix, right? You know, there's wonderful things like the Midtown Global Market and, you know, all these support structures for helping support entrepreneurs and and help them, you know, get their sea legs. And I think we need to make sure that that stays in the mix. Um, you know, we're sponsoring, there's a, a food website called The Heavy Table, and um, we're underwriting a series of articles where they're going out and they're actually telling the stories of restaurants and markets as they're trying to come back online and, and start selling product again. So um, I think the other piece is as consumers go support restaurants on Lake Street. There's mm-hmm. great restaurants on Lake Street. Um, you can find amazing food. So, you know, check out the Heavy Table series of articles, choose some places and, and go go buy some stuff so we can support people while we get this these big questions figured out. Right, right. Meanwhile, what about Peace Coffee? Things are going well right now. What are what are what's your focus? What are you you know, what are you planning for and hoping for next year and in the next few years? We're going to continue to expand. I mean, you know, the the future looks bright for us. Um, you know, I, I am I do have some measure of concern for coffee growing communities and, and coffee farmers, um, especially in, you know, pandemic and health systems and how if we get a vaccine, how long will it take any potential vaccine to get to Africa or South America or Central America? Um, so you know, we're going to continue to to support, financially support communities as they're dealing with the pandemic right now. Um, we put two cents a pound for every bag of coffee that we sell, uh, or every pound of coffee that we sell. Um, we're putting it into a fund. And right now that's supporting pandemic relief. Um, it will switch back to some of its former activities focusing on um, combating climate change in the future. But um, yeah, for, for the business, for the sales side of the business, I think, you know, the future's bright. That's great. Um, do when you think about where you are and what you set out to do, is this just sort of? It seems like just the absolute perfect job for you, and you're the perfect person to lead this company. I hope I'm the perfect person because I love the job. So um, yeah, that that let's 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 hope that continues. But uh, yeah, no, I I I do love my job. I mean, it's it's. I, like I said, I've I've wanted to work since I was a little kid. So if I'm gonna have you know, a coat that I get up and put on every morning that says, you know, this is this is the thing you're going to carry around for the day and it's going to be all consuming. I'm, I'm really lucky that it's Peace Coffee. You found your purpose. So the shops have been closed since March. Um, hard to know when we're going to be out of this pandemic. What's what's the future? Do you think Peace Coffee stays in retail after COVID-19? Yeah, like so many other businesses, you know, our our decision is partially driven by the fact that our leases are coming up. And in looking at the retail spaces that we've been operating and in looking at what our core competency is, where the bigger part of our business is, as we continue to scale, it seems to make sense to kind of keep things simple and really um, double down on what we're best at. And what we're best at as a business is the wholesale side of the business. So we begin thinking and talking about, okay, what does the future of retail look like for us? Um, We've struck up a relationship with a nonprofit called Wildflyer Coffee. And Wildflyer has been employing um, young people who are experiencing homelessness, and they serve coffee at farmer's markets or they do pop-ups out of existing coffee shops. Well, they've been trying to figure out how to find a more stable place for them to operate their business out of. So 
we started talking to Wildflyer and we said, well, you know, our flagship coffee shop, it, it's got great community support. It's got great neighborhood support. It's a very robust business. So what if we worked with you to transition the business over to Wildflyer? We'll basically provide you with a turnkey coffee shop. So they, they're taking over the espresso machine. They're, you know, we're leaving everything there for them. And they're going to get to ramp up the amount of young people that they are able to train. It still will be peace coffee served in the Wildflyer coffee shop. So they're, you know, entering into that relationship with us. Um, but all of those, you know, all of the youth experiencing homelessness, and there's been a dramatic increase in the number of folks who've, who've looked to Wildflyer to, to provide them with work. Um, now that will be like how the shop will, will operate. Um, so you know, we're really exciting and excited. I think in a lot of ways, for me, it feels like the next evolution of our mission, right? Um, you know, not only is it Peace Coffee with all of these other things, but we're transferring our knowledge over, over to Wildflyer. Um, we're, we're giving them, you know, our team that they can rely on and ask questions of, and we're giving them the space to operate out of. That's really cool. Um, do, I'm, I'm curious, and I mean, given your background in working with in public policy and with nonprofits, I mean, is it sort of, does it become almost like a nonprofit arm of the business or? I don't know. You know, we're early in our conversation. I don't want to, you know, Carly is the woman who, who started Wildflyer. It, it's her vision. I don't want to. Um, take away or overshadow her vision for right now, the way we're talking about this is it's a partnership for us. You know, we have an initiative called Coffee Creates Community, and it's all about all the ways Peace Coffee wants to show up and support the various communities that we do business in. And this is one expression of that. Let's let's form this partnership with Wildflyer. Um, let's, you know, have conversation between the two organizations and, and see where this goes. For right now, I'm really happy that for the winter, these young people have a place to work. Um, we'll get the coffee shop back open and serving the, the Longfellow neighborhood and surrounding communities. Um, and we'll continue to serve our mission of buying more green coffee and selling more roasted coffee. I think it's so cool that your whole your philosophy about everything is that you don't have to pick that it's a mission or it's profit. It's it can be both. You yeah. can make money and that's an okay thing. It can do good in the world. Yeah. Well, no, that's where the fun is, yeah. right? The fun is in, like, you know, going back earlier and talking about not wanting to have a scarcity mindset. You know, one way to prevent ever going into scarcity mindset is to make sure that you're making money and you can pay your employees more and cover increases in health insurance costs and do all these things. You need to keep the business healthy. And we talk about that a lot. And our employees really respect that, that keeping the business healthy is protecting them, right? Um, but then, you know, it's it's really, it's, it's fun to be able to do this. I have to say, it's just, it's really fun to be able to say, how can I run a business, but also just, you know, be a collection of good people who want to do good things. Um, that it's, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. You are. You are. It's a great way to be. And we're lucky to have you in the community. Thanks, Thank Lee. Thanks. Well, Lee Wallace talks so much about mission and purpose. It's what drives her in business. But there's so much talk today about mission and purpose. What does it really mean in relation to the corporate world? Let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Casey Freed is an assistant professor in the Department of Entrepreneurship, and he spends a lot of time thinking about this very question, mission versus corporate purpose. Thanks for joining us, Professor Freed. 
Thank you, Allison. It's great to be here. So so talk to us a little bit about how, how do you distinguish in, in your head and in your classroom mission versus corporate purpose? Yes, that, that's a great question. Also a very timely one. You know, when I, you know, a mission statement is really about how a company plans to pursue its goals. And this can be around market, you know, pursuing market leadership, increasing profitability, gaining clients. I mean, there are any number of metrics that an organization might include or focus on in its mission statement. Um, But this may or may not um, center on or even include um, what we might term corporate purpose. And when we talk about a corporate purpose, this is really more about a core reason for being or the impact that an organization wants to have on the world or on their surrounding community. Mm -hmm. And so there might be a distinction um, to draw here between the two. So I know in your own work, uh, Casey, you're looking at the way businesses relate to the community at large. It's something we've seen a lot of, frankly, this year with businesses rushing to to help communities in need and and offer supplies. Um, what are you finding in your in your own work and research? One of the things that we found in examining the craft beer industry um, nationwide is, you know, we we found that, so the industry is already um, defined in some ways by some shared values, such as paying it forward, you know, helping new entrants that enter into the segment um, with their issues that they're having when they're trying to start their businesses, um, but also this shared value of a rising tide, you know, lifting all boats. Mm-hmm. And and, and this is interesting. And there are um, a number of segments, particularly in artisanal or craft-based segments, that share these values. But I think what's even more interesting and how this can directly tie to the community is when you start looking at the roles that founders of these businesses adopt and how these roles actually change with, you know, kind of the, the growth of, of their business. And the role that's most specifically, I think, related to community is that what you find in these industry segments, and, and I, I think to a certain extent, listening to Lee talk about, um, you know, Peace Coffee and their relationship to the community here in Minneapolis, St. Paul, is that we find that the business owners, in a sense, become stewards of the entire ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And so as an example of that, like one of the founders we, we spoke with in our sample, um, this was a very, very successful brewery in a major metropolitan area in the United States. And, you know, they've been around for 20, 30 some odd years. And this founder and the founding team, they spent a significant amount of time really helping to lay the groundwork in the community. So, for example, um, sitting on neighborhood boards, you know, writing to politicians, writing op-eds for the local paper um, around issues such as zoning laws, you know, trying to anything they could do policy-wise to make it easier right. for someone who wanted to start a brewery 
to do so and not have to jump over the same hurdles that they had to do when they started. Right. We've so this seen, idea of, yeah. We've certainly seen that here in, in the Twin Cities as well. So so it, it, it's things that might benefit the business, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, with earning a dollar, but it's also thinking about the, the, the greater good and the community at large, being ambassadors in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and to that point, you know, in, in, in interview after interview that we conducted, um, there, you know, they, they didn't mince any words like that. You need to make money. You need cash. Flow, <laughs> otherwise, you, you can't help anybody. Right. And exactly. So, but the way that they talked about it, it, you know, when they did talk about competition, it was it was in it was almost like in a different kind of language. It was much more relational than it was transactional. Hmm. And it was also much more about quality. So, like, let's compete on quality. Let's compete on how we can educate our consumer base so that they can have a better understanding of the potential of the product, in this case, beer. And it sounded to me like in in, in Lee's interview that there were some elements of that um, in, in the in the coffee industry as well. Yeah, I think so. Well, great perspective. It'll it'll be interesting to, to see more of your research on this very topic. Professor Freed, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to By All Means. Thanks to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to know more about our show, you can go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. If you're listening on Apple, Take a minute to rate and review us. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to By All Means. to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed By All Means. By All Means.